This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Let's look at a text, Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, I love this line, look at it, and he set out not knowing where he was going. Anybody ever been there? Okay. Anybody ever got married? Anybody ever had kids? And he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land. Abraham got to Canaan, the promised land, but knew actually that physical promised land was only a portent, just a presage of what he was really called to, to that land that all of us as children of Abraham are called to. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised as in a foreign land, and when he got there, he lived in tents. He just didn't feel that he could dig down into that earth and pour concrete. So he sunk three-inch, six-inch tent pegs into the ground. And his son Isaac and grandson Jacob, who were heirs with him to the same promise, they did the same. The reason they lived in tents, the reason they sunk tent pegs instead of concrete was because they really looked for a city that has foundations. A city that has foundations that merits our own foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered God, who had called him, faithful, the God who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And all of these died in faith without having received the promises. But from a distance, from a distance, they saw and greeted those promises. And they confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. Anybody grew up singing, this world is not my home? This world is not. Randy Oxley, West Virginia Pentecostal. Of course you did. (laughs) It goes best with spoons, right? Uh, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, even a better country than the one they found in Canaan. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. The Lenten season, this Lenten season, every Lenten season, and frankly, for that matter, every moment of our life as followers of Christ, we are people who have our eyes fixed, diverting at times, but idealistically fixed on an ultimate goal. The ultimate goal that the writer of Hebrews called an everlasting abiding city, a hope that Jesus referred to as the kingdom of God, a hope that we have referred to as real life. There are a million, perhaps a thousand synonyms for this. This goal of ours that we refer to as not just life, but real life. Um, Jesus talked about it and he called it abundant life, the kingdom of heaven, the ways of God come true on the earth. Our goal, this kingdom of God that we talk about, uh, the Apostle Paul said it's Christ in us, our hope of glory. Our ultimate goal, this prize that we fix our eyes on, is, is a world, 
I grew up with it being a world in an ancient or a distant time and a distant place where there would be big mansions and the streets would be pure gold. But we look for an abiding city more substantial than one that can be described physically. We look for a kingdom. In this Lenten journey, as we make our way with Christ toward a resurrection, toward a fullness of life, we look for a world where kindness, a world where love, a world where justice, a world where goodness, a world made right. Listening early this morning to a program on ESPN, um, Jeremy Schapp, uh, a reporter on ESPN, was doing a story in Thailand of little boys, five, six, and seven years old, who are brought into um, an art form. We would know it simply as martial arts and boxing, but they are brought into an art form. And they began at the ages of five, six, and seven training and fighting before thousands of people. It's a part of the culture of Thailand. This particular martial arts, and I can't remember the name now, is a, is a part of the fabric of their history. But sadly, these little boys are being trained and they're fighting like uh, roosters or pit bulls. And by the time they're 12, 13, and 14 years old, do the severe blows to the head that they're enduring from one another in front of crowds of thousands of people. These little boys are experiencing heavy deposits of iron, and by the time they're 20, are even beginning to show signs of dementia. When pressed, uh, the uh, administrator and the governor over these things admitted that it was a great sadness, but it was a part of their culture that they weren't willing to correct. Off to a farm they went to interview one little seven-year-old boy. It became clear through his testimony that the only reason, Pam, that he fought in this way was because his family couldn't live any other way. His family were starving. A family of five with grandparents in the home. Uh, parents worked to dig a living of subsistence from the earth but just weren't able to make ends meet. And this little boy, for every brutal fight, gets 5 to $20 that happens once a month and that five to twenty dollars is half of his family's income and it provides them with the ability to live and the little boy said though his <laughs> in the sweetest form he said though his head hurt really badly he was glad that he could provide food for his mom and dad and grandpa and his little brothers and sisters in the Lenten journey as we take our aim on a resurrection we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're looking for a world where seven-year-old boys will not have to subject themselves to brutality and pain. And that little boy, emblematic of hundreds and thousands of millions of other people who endure injustice in this life. We fix our eyes on what the Apostle Paul calls the prize. In Philippians 3, he said it's the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's one that we haven't attained to. It's one that we get glimpses of, taste of. It's, it's one that here and there, Paul Tillich said, now and then we see. But until that day, we put tent pegs in the ground. We live with canopies over our head because we know that this world is not fully the kingdom of God yet. And until that day when we fully understand in ways that none of us can comprehend what the kingdom of God, Paul, will really be. Until that day, we know that there's a lot of work to do. That all of us as individuals are within the periphery of our small life to bring the kingdom of God to bear upon this hurting world. We are to bring the kingdom of God with all of its kindness, with all of its love and justice and goodness. We are to bring that to bear at least within the realm that we stand. Part of the work of the kingdom that we have to do is called the Paschal Cycle. Underscoring, superintending, permeating the work of the kingdom of God, the Lenten season reminds us is this idea of a Paschal Cycle. Paschal being a fancy religious term that means having to do with Easter or the Passover. 
The Paschal cycle that the sages and the mystics have been speaking of through the ages in the Christian church, the Paschal cycle is the idea of Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's burial, and Christ's rebirth or his resurrection. In this Lenten journey, we as a church are recognizing that our hope, the hope of the kingdom, the hope of the world is bound up in this Christ cycle, this Paschal cycle of life and death and burial and rebirth. And we remind ourselves in this season what we should be reminding our, ourselves of all year long, and that is that we must give ourselves to this cycle with the hopeful end that ultimately resurrection will have the last say. Ultimately, injustice will be no more. Ultimately, tears will be wiped away. Ultimately, death will be done with its dying, and death itself will die. And we are to be about the business of the Paschal cycle. This particular Lenten season, we as a church are doing something that I think is very important. We're recognizing that there are parts of that Paschal cycle that we don't like tending to. The birth and the life of Jesus, sure. The rebirth and resurrection of Jesus, absolutely. But Paul said the good news of that Paschal cycle was not only that Christ was born and that he was reborn, the good news also is that he died and was buried. And the question most certainly begs, what is the good news in the death and burial of anyone? What is especially the good news in the death and burial of God when he came to live a human life? Well, we're tending to this business of sacred endings. T.S. Eliot stated our faith well when Eliot, speaking, I think, of that Paschal cycle, Eliot said, in our end is our beginning. He could have just as easily said, Lee, in our resurrections is our death. In our burials is our, our, our births. Eliot said, in my end, all of this is tied together. In my end is my beginning, and in my beginning is my end. Botanically speaking, in, in the seed is the fruit, and in the fruit is the seed. Paul said, I set my eyes on the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, a world where there's no sex slavery of children, where there are no abuse shelters for hurting women, in, in a world where addiction rages no more, where little boys don't have to fight for subsistence and food. Paul said, I set my eyes on the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But Paul knew something. He knew about this Paschal cycle that we're involved in, and Paul, with great longing, said, Oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. But he paused and turned what he wanted to be a period into a comma and said, But I must know him first in the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable even unto his death. This Lenten season, we as a church are following along with Christ, and we are watching not only how he prepared for a resurrection, not only how he lived his life, but we are watching the way he tended so well, John, to his deaths and his burials. We're watching how Jesus gave great care and stewardship, tending to the processes of his life that he would have just as soon forgotten about, tending well to his death and burial just as well as he attended to his birth and resurrection. And so following the example of Jesus, who stewarded all of these deaths and endings and chapter closings of his life so well, I'm seeking inspiration for us on how to do our endings well, how to bring some sense of sacredness to the deaths and the closings and the burials of our own Paschal cycle. Central to the Christian faith. Central to the Christian faith is the belief that we were created in the image of God. Now listen to me and follow. We were created in the image of God, as one writer said so well, we were fired into this life from the womb of eternity. We were fired into this life with a burning, powerful sense of longing. Two children that we've had the privilege to bring into this world and to rear in this world, I can tell you one little girl by the name of Nina Kay 
she was definitely fired into this life with strong propulsion. Before she could even walk, Angelisa, she would walk, she would crawl into every room looking up, trying to figure out what her options were. And she would have seen those expanses just above us, and she would have, without even the articulation of words, she would have set her mind filled with wonderlust, filled with quest, filled with zest, filled with the horsepower of imagination and longing, and yet surrounding that NASCAR-charged wanderlust was a little chassis that couldn't bear it, and so our life has been filled with emergency rooms and urgent care and cast and bumps and bruises. We come into this world fired into life with powerful longings, powerful desires, powerful, vast expectations. We come into this world with an idealized sense of what life should be. We come into this world knowing that life should be fair. Go to any preschool around here, go to their playground, you will hear very, you will hear very few kids saying, that's not loving or that's not kind, but you will hear a bunch of three and four-year-olds saying, that's not fair. We come into this world birthed out of the womb of Eden, birthed out of the image of God, believing idealistically that life should be fair, that life should be giving, that life should be good, that life should be comfortable, that life should be pleasurable. We come into this world before we even know the names of all of this stuff, believing that life should be mutual, that we should be loved the way that we love, even overestimating how well we love. We come into this world with an idealized sense, expecting care, expecting love, expecting kindness, expecting satisfaction of needs. That's the way we come into this world. This ideal image that we come into the world with, a lot of people call it a lot of different things. Those still yet on the cynical side of life call this ideal image impractical. They call this ideal image unrealistic. They look at those who are prone to these idealistic images of equanimity and fairness and love and goodness. They look at them and they say they're simply gullible and they're naive. They look at those folk and they say they were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I remember when I was that way. And then there are those who clamor to retain this ideal of Eden. There are those of us who call this not unrealistic, but who call this optimistic hopeful, faithful. There are those of us who are very aware that in a world where seven-year-old boys have to destroy their brain to feed their family, we are aware that the soil of this world doesn't deserve much more than six inches of the tent peg of our life. And yet down, down deep in the substrata, not of this earth, but in our own soul, we sense that there should be something better. We long for something better. And so we are optimistic, we are hopeful, we are idealistic, we are romantic in the, straight, in the strictest sense of the word. We are utopian, channeling Cervantes, we are quixotic, if you remember Don Quixote. We are starry-eyed, but I call this something else. I call this wanderlust and this zeal. This week, I've sat with three couples. It's a part of my life as a pastor to serve as an emergency room for embarrassed, hurting, broken people whose yellow brick road has turned muddy and hard. And I sat this week with three of you, three couples who were at an end, broken and hurting. One particular young couple, we couldn't even get to the issue of marriage and how to begin the repair because they were so ashamed to be here, embarrassed to be here after all that money we spent and all that heart we invested. As much as we loved the Lord and loved one another, 
with heads pitched downward again and again. I felt their shame until finally I realized, Dave, I just reached over and took him by the shoulder and I said, look at me. You think you're the first one who's walked down that aisle? You think you're the first one that's picked out that dress and spent money on those tuxedos? You think you're the first one to hobble into an office angry, hurting, heartbroken, disappointed? I looked at him and gave him the gift that someone gave me years ago. And Kevin, I looked at him and said, welcome to the human family. How many of the people who walked down that aisle felt like they were spending all that money and heart on a 50% chance? And yet right here, smack dab in the highest divorce rate in the nation, the reality is all those people who walk down that aisle, they're not the fools and us, the smart folk, all of us are together. We are those fools. And yet I looked at that young couple and said, lift your heads. And I pointed across the bridge and I pointed up here and I said, do you know how many couples are setting out here? with long and lasting marriages, not because they skipped through, but because two or three times in the course of their marriage, they thought it was gonna end, but they sat where you are with hope and with hearts vulnerable and asked God for help. You can do this. Welcome to the human family. And I told him in a world with a 50% divorce rate and even more alarming, a world with a marriage rate going down because people are giving up on the institution. Because that's what we do with the blisters of life. We develop thick calluses and we become hardened to keep ourselves from the abrasive, blistering pain that life invokes. And so we quit marrying. But I looked at them and said, if you give yourself to this process, there's a chance, as my great granddad said to me with his hand on my head, there's a chance once the first once the first love has waned, once the first torture has been endured, there is a chance if you give yourself to the healing hand of God's Spirit and a lot of work that you will find in your old age a tenderness, a constancy. Welcome to the human family. Am I quixotic? Am I optimistic? No. I would say that what I'm heeding in those moments is a prize, a high calling, a, a city, a city with foundations deeper than the one beneath my feet. I call this not optimistic, I call it a vestige of Eden. I call it the image of God, a portent of what was and what will be. I call this sense in me that drives me to lead you and to call even my own heart up to at times. I call this sense of, I call this sense of hope predictive. I call it prescient. Uh, to use a religious word that we all know, I call it prophetic. Because I believe in our childhood ideals. I believe in the wide open heart of my adolescent 15-year-old boy that has no way of knowing all the blows that can come to you when your arms are that far spread. Bob, I call this prophetic. I call that bright-eyed, bushy-tailed beginning as a foreshadowing of our ultimate ends. C.S. Lewis uh, in his autobiography, which is where I would encourage all of you to start with Lewis. You hear mere Christianity, screw tape letters, grief observed, all of those are phenomenal, but start with Lewis with his biography, Surprised by Joy. Even Lewis's definition of joy speaks to this issue of an idealized hope. Joy, Lewis defines this way. Lewis said true Christian joy is the unsatisfied longing for home that in its dissatisfaction is more satisfying than anything this world can give. The unsatisfied desire for the kingdom of God that in its dissatisfaction is more satisfying than any satisfaction the world can know. Lewis, in Surprised by Joy, 
talked about these prophetic ideals that our children come into the world with, that we walk down the aisles with, that we enter the new career with. Lewis called these predictive longings, these prescient expectations. He called them memories. Listen to him. In his autobiography, he relates how as a young child, he was standing beside a flowering currant bush and as a little eight-year-old boy standing beside that flowering bush, a memory was triggered. And Lewis said, there suddenly rose in me without warning, as if from a depth not of years, but of centuries. The memory of that earlier morning at the old house when my brother had brought his toy garden and a biscuit tin filled with moss into the nursery. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. From Milton's paradise lost, enormous bliss of Eden comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire, but desire for what, I wondered as a child. A desire not certainly for a biscuit tin filled with moss, nor even, though that came into it, for my own past. But before I knew what I had desired, the desire itself was gone, the whole glimpse withdrawn, and the world turned commonplace again, and yet the world stirred now with a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had taken only a moment of time, and in a certain sense from that day forward, everything else that ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. A brief moment of insight. The Celts called these moments thin places, for somehow the sovereign wind blows in this harsh and hurting world and the veil separates and we see and we taste. And Paul said, I descend the staircase back from heaven and I find no words in this frame to explain what I saw. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. We have senses and bits of that in the stillness of the night, in those vulnerable hours between two and three when some of us are arrested by dreams of grandpa's gone on, mothers that we can no longer touch. In those still nights, my dad lost his father when my, father, when my dad was 15 years old. This year, dad will be 70. And for the last 55 years, Lee, he said he dreams of him at least once a week. He said, and the dreams of him are clear, and the dreams of him... In the dreams, he always comes to me 55 years later. Dad said, I wake somewhere between sweat and tears, somewhere between laughter and sadness. I, I wake and there's some semblance of reality, some semblance of a past ripped away, and yet some semblance of reunion. In my end is my beginning. And Dad says, I don't know which way to look, forward or backward, but he was there. Our brain experiences strange moments that we call deja vu senses of being somewhere when time irrelativizes, when time loses its sense. And the German romantics of the 18th and 19th century fighting hard against a, mysteri a mysteriously poor, overly rationalistic, reductionistic enlightenment that was reducing everything beyond the periodic table and beyond mathematic formulas, the inertia of the Enlightenment was to demystify everything until finally nothing was left but quantifiable organic matter and nothing meant nothing. But the German romantics in the 18th and 19th century fought hard against that hope-sapping rationalization and they noticed that there were some senses that we had in our dreams, in the breaking of bread, in songs that are sung, hints that come through poetry, sunsets and babies born. There was this ethereal sense that they call Saint Souk. Saint Souk, they said, was a sense of yearning, a sense of longing that was rooted in an intense missing. This is why I wake just a few mornings ago having, having been with a granddad that I love so dear, almost feeling his hand, and you wake 
and you lie there in the vulnerable stillness of the morning and somewhere between depression and euphoria, somewhere between gone and coming, somewhere between here and there, Paul Tillich said, now and then glimpses come. A sense of yearning that underneath is rooted in an intense missing, a soul-embedded memory. This intense missing is one of our deepest human emotions. And it points, the cynic says, to wishful thinking, an organic survival of the fittest, just as surely as you, when drowning in water, struggle and strive to keep your nose above water. The cynic says, all of these dreams and all of these hopes and all of this breaking of bread and all of this sentimental, sappy nostalgia embedded in songs and poetry, no, they say, no. It's simply a psychological form of survival of the fittest. It's simply your brain and heart and soul fighting irrelevantly against the reality, the harsh reality of life, trying to keep the nose of your soul above water. But the rest of us, for centuries and millennia past now, we sense that those dreams and these sentiments and the memories that we experience with the wafting of a smell, the hint of a cologne, and they're there again. We sense that these things point to a dimension of our existence beyond time and space. Embedded down deep in the fabric of poetry, embedded down deep in the fabric of our dreams and our longings that cause us to open ourselves again, wide open to another round of hurt, embedded in that idealism is a portent of what is to come and a memory of from whence we come. It is either unfounded radical nostalgia or it is, as I believe, a hint of ultimate reality. I'll read this and I want Shelley to come back and sing that song again through this filter. In the musical adaptation of Don Quixote de la Mancha, Cervantes was thrown into prison. And down in the bowels of that disgusting, filthy prison, when his fellow prisoners, John, learn that he's a poet, they turn on him. And they begin to make sport of him, threatening to tear him apart limb to limb. One of his critics angrily rebukes Cervantes and says, Dreamer! Dream on, he says, in this nightmare. Poets, the man snarls, are madmen who spin nonsense out of nothing, hopeless utopian romantics. This, the man snarled, was a great wrong. This stuff that you do in church, the breaking of bread, the drinking of wine, 2,000-year-old, faithfully trodden paths to a cross, Lenten journeys. It's all a flight from the facts and people should be made to face life as it really is. He grabs Cervantes by the throat and jeers as he says, why cause you men to dream? Cervantes looks around at the filth and the squalor of the prison and he thinks of the injustice that's landed him and many others there. And he thinks to himself, perhaps he's right. And then he thinks, but must people settle for life as it is? Must we settle for Palestinian and Jewish children being blown to shreds, Paul? Must we settle? Cervantes said, is dreaming for something better really madness? Cervantes looks at his chief critic and he says to him, I have traveled the world, I have been enslaved, and I have fought in war, and I have held my young friends as they were dying for causes they knew not. And he said, these were men who saw life the way you do, as it is. These were men who died despairing. No glory, no brave last words, only their eyes filled with confusion, questioning why. 
And I don't think they were asking why they were dying. I think they were asking why they ever lived. You call me lunatic. Life itself seems a lunatic to me. And who knows, my friend, where madness lies. Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. To seek treasure where there's only trash. Too much sanity may be madness. And maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it could be, as it should be. And Jesus whispers to us on our Lenten journey, all of us with calluses and cynicism a toe, except you become as a little child, you won't be able to enter the kingdom. The Paschal journey, and I'll read you my soliloquy now, the Paschal journey is life, death, burial, and rebirth. This journey says that we were born with Christ, miraculously, all of us. With him, we were fired through that manger, through that virgin womb. We were fired out of Eden, out of God's heart, out of God's ideal and dream for creation. And for a time for all of us, life was about joy, fun, peace, friends that would never walk away. Life was about wholeness, mutual love. Life was 2.3 kids and a white picket fence and a career that would last. But for many of us, for all of us, soon enough we find sadness, pain, anxiety, fear, betrayal. And we begin seeking fig leaves as we hear for the first time that we're ugly, that we don't fit as we're picked last begrudgingly. And the dream, the ideal, begins the harsh process of death. But between death and rebirth, and we will get to Easter soon enough, brothers and sisters, and it will be fair. But between death and rebirth stands our treatment of our death. Not only was the good news that Christ became ultimately one with us in death, not only is the good news that he will rise again and we join him in that risenness, not only is the good news the death and the resurrection, but the good news is the burial, which is our treatment of our death. We deal cruelly with our deaths, you and I. The question of the Lenten season for us this year is will we with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, will we come when all other disciples go ashamed? C.S. Lewis said, I'm not afraid of death as much as I'm ashamed of it. And all the disciples, J.D., ran. But two men stepped from the crowd and they begged the deadness of God. They begged for his body because they understood that part of the Lenten season, part of ultimately our good end is stewarding of the difficult beginnings and deaths of our life. And they begged for this dream that hung on a cross. They begged for no resurrection. They begged simply for the decency and dignity to lay him in a tomb borrowed. The question of this Lenten season is the question of burial. Will we allow the deaths of our life and the broken, crucified Christ of our heart, will we allow those things to fester and canker on trees suspended? Or will we, with Mary and the women, come to anoint this death with perfume? This is the question of the Lenten season. Will we, with God, commit that this body of dreams, though dead, need not see decay? He did not resurrect from a cross he taught us how to do our burials decently, how to walk away. J.D., you taught me something, how to say this is the end, but I'll leave you with peace. He taught us not only about deaths and resurrection, he taught us about burials. Or will we leave our Christ, our deaths, our broken dreams on the crucifix to corrupt, to embitter, and to stink to the depths of our soul? The good news is that he lived, that he died, 
and that he was buried well. What has life done to you? What has life done to you? Or better said, what have you allowed life to do to you? We cannot cease with our dyings, but we can affect the manner by which we take our cross. Do we go kicking with human indignity? Do we go kicking and screaming? Or do we look at the cross and say, as our Christ said, no man takes my life. I lay it with purpose. And so a 26-year-old Joni Mitchell, and if you want to do something artistic and spiritual, go online and listen to Joni Mitchell in 1970. It's the first one that comes up with long hair and prairie dress. Listen to that girl that we all love so much. Listen to her at 26 sing a song that she wrote that she could have never imagined fully what it meant. And then spin forward. The next offering is from 2000, where at almost 60 years old, she sings, along, she sings the song slower with a voice not as clear, rasped by harshness, and yet coated with, coated with a dignity, coated with a life not calloused, but a life that is sought to remain sensitive and open. And I think of our children, and Shelley will sing, rows and flows of angel hair, and ice cream castles in the air, and feather canyons everywhere. I used to look at clouds that way. But now they only block the sun, they rain and they snow on everyone. So many things I would have done, but clouds got in my way. Moons and Junes and Ferris wheels, the dizzy dancing way you feel as every fairy tale comes real. I've looked at love that way, but now it's just another show. You leave them laughing when you go, and if you care, don't let them know. Don't give yourself away. I've looked at love from both sides now, from give and take, and still somehow it's life's and love's illusions I recall. I really don't know love at all. Tears and fears and feeling proud to one more time say I love you right out loud. Dreams and schemes and circus crowds, I've looked at life that way. But now old friends are acting strange. They shake their heads and they tell me that I've changed. Well, something's lost, but something's gained in living every day. I've looked at life from both sides now. On this Paschal journey, we follow Christ and somewhere along the way, we lose the ideal. But that ideal, though lost temporarily, that ideal is embedded in the foundation of our hope. And in our end is our beginning. Listen to the song one more time. <clears throat> Ah. Uh -huh. 
So you come to us, Lord, in this Lenten season, and on your, on your way to a cross, on your way to a resurrection, you come to us and say, there you are, child. There you are, battered one. And you reach your hand to us, and you whisper, what has life done to you? What have you let life do to you? Take my hand, 
the Lenten journeying Christ says, take my hand, we will do this together. We will face disappointments and Gethsemanes, divorces and betrayals, crucifixions and deaths. We will do this together, child, and I will keep your heart safe. I will keep your heart from calluses if you will find and follow me. Take my hand, child. Let us go up to Jerusalem. Let us go up to Golgotha. And let us finally go up to the kingdom. Take my hand, child. Let's go together. And we rest in that in this Lenten season, sweet, sweet Lord, until the day when hats fly and we celebrate resurrection. I pray, Lord, that you would tend to the calluses of our soul, heal our bitterness and cynicism until these illusions of life are made sight. For in these things we do hope, a world made right, the kingdom of God. Until that day, we are faithfully yours, and we will follow you. And that's why we pray these things, and we say your name. Because we don't know how else to live or die, but in the name of Jesus May we do our burials well this week as we journey toward an open tomb. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Now be good to one another. Go in God's grace. We'll see you in the house of the Lord next week.